You're listening to Trucking Questions from the Audio Road with Kevin Rutherford. This is the show that puts the money where it belongs, back in your pocket. You can ask questions about trucks, money, fuel mileage, maintenance, tires, tax, technology, or anything else about the business of trucking. Here we go. Let's head on down the audio road. Welcome to my world. I'm your host, Kevin Rutherford. The number to join us, 8888 Road Dog. The website is letstruck.com. The show is all about the business of trucking. We take your calls and answer your questions about tires, taxes, technology, health and fitness on the road, getting started as an owner-operator, finding freight, working with brokers, getting your own authority. The list goes on and on. Today is the Power Hour. We'll be taking your questions and answering your questions about engines, performance, modifications, troubleshooting, you name it. All you have to do is pick up the phone and ask the question. Joining me from Pittsburgh Power today, we've got Bruce and Leroy and John. Hey, guys, welcome back. Hey, Kevin, thank you for having us. It's always a pleasure, and we have one change. Uh, Leroy has so many electrical problems he's working on today. We have Mike Ness. Mike sitting in for Leroy. Mike is the first owner-operator to have the 12.7 with the variable geometry turbo, and it's his website that, and his truck says searching for 11 mile per gallon. So he's going to be on with us. Well, welcome, Mike. Well, thank you. Okay, we're getting some feedback from somebody. Let me check to see who it is. Um, it's... Bruce, I think it's Hold on a second. All right, Bruce, it's you. So I've got Mike and John back on. Bruce, we've got to figure out why we're getting so much feedback from you. Uh, is oh, is no, Bruce there? Bruce, Bruce. Guys, John? Yeah, he's here. Uh, he just accidentally hung oh. up on you. He was changing. He was switching from his headset to uh, a handset for his phone. Now, and uh, I'll tell he, you what. Uh, I, I think he lost you. What else might be happening? Now, Bruce is still here. I put him on hold. He might be so close to you that your mic is picking him up at the same time I'm getting it on his phone. Unmute Bruce now. Let's see what happens. Okay, because I can hear him. No, he's still too close to you guys. I wonder if I can turn down the sensitivity of my mic. Your sound's really hot right now. So and it's picking him up in the background as well. I can hear him when he's talking to you, even when I have him on hold. So tell Bruce to talk right now while I've got him on hold, because if I can hear him, we know we're going to get feedback. Now, he, there we did. He just leave the room. No, he's still here. Do you hear me now? I can hear you, and I don't hear Bruce anymore, so let me bring him back on. Bruce, are you there now? I am, Kevin. You're still too close or something's too hot? I'm still getting feedback. I'm hearing myself. So we gotta we got to figure that out. Can it, Is he just on a phone, John? He is just on a phone, uh, and Mike and I are on the headsets right now. My gain on my mic was turned the whole way up. I turned it down to half. Okay. 
He, yeah, I think it, it's still picking him up, and I'm getting his voice coming across both his phone and your mic. So I'm even getting myself back somewhere. Let me try it again. Okay. Here. Here's what we'll do. I'll take the headset. No, that's, yeah, that's not going to work. We're going to have to figure out something else. We're going to turn the uh, we're turning Bruce's phone off. He's going to go. He and Mike are going to share a headset. Okay, that'll work. How about that? That should work. Yeah. All right. So now that we've got that taken care of, what's uh, what's new and exciting there at Pittsburgh Power? Well, if you recall, last week we had a Mercedes Freightliner towed in with a Mercedes and a Freightliner dealer and. Ohio worked on it for three days and couldn't find out why it wouldn't run. And we had it towed in, and that was during the show. Well, guess what we found? What? The power wire that goes from the battery to the ECM, the crimp was bad where the wire went into the eye. You know, that... that, uh... Yep, I had, when I bought that 99 Volvo, and it was during, it was like the week or two before the CMC, and I flew to Virginia, and I just picked it up, and I was in a hurry, and I literally didn't even get a chance to do a walk around the truck. I had to get in the truck, start it up, get somewhere so I could get set up and do the show, and I figured once I do the show, I'll take some time, do a walk around. Uh, I got a half a mile from the guy's house where I bought the truck. And it started cutting out on me. Like you would be going down the road and everything would just cut out. And you'd hit a bump and it would all come back on. And then it would cut out. And I thought, okay, that's got to be a connection somewhere. And I looked all over and it was the same thing. It was a small wire that was Mm -hmm. on the positive side of the battery. um, And it, it was crimped, but it was inside the crimp where it was loose. And I finally... Actually, I bumped it while I was doing something else, and it was running, and the engine cut off. And I thought, oh, well, there it is. It was that simple. That's, that's right. So we had about uh, two and a half hours in actually finding the problem because we would have assumed that that Freightliner would have checked something that simple, but they didn't. Right. And by, by the way, Al Hammerson, you know Al Hammerson, we had pulled yeah. out the EGR engine years ago and put in a 14-liter in his Coronado. And his truck is ultra clean and very well maintained. But he parks it in his barn in Iowa for the summer because he farms. Well, he called me two weeks ago, and he went to start the truck. It wouldn't start. Now, he drove it into the barn, and Al is not only mechanically inclined, he cleans everything every night. The truck is spotless. And... So we went round and round and so so he had a guy come out and hook a laptop onto it, and they could see intermittent power. So they went to the wire from the battery to the ECM, and it was in a plastic loom, and the loom was perfect. But guess what? The wire had corroded in the loom, and it corroded through while it was sitting in his dry barn. Yeah, crazy. Isn't that something? Yeah, yeah. It is. So, another thing I'd like to say, uh, you know, John Walco came back to work with us after 30 years of being away and being in the race car industry, and he still works the races part time. 
Well, this past weekend, he was the chief engineer on a Formula Mazda race car, and it was the Mazda Road to Indianapolis series, and they were racing in the streets of Toronto. And they were running at about uh, 140 mile per hour through the streets. Well, John's car won first place. So we want to give a congratulations to John Walco for the chief engineer and taking first place. Yes, congratulations. Great stuff. And John's going to talk about a little bit about how they look for fractions of a second on speed on this race car versus us looking for fractions of a tenth of a mile or a quarter mile per gallon in semi-trucks. Hi, Kevin. Hey, we, hey uh, yeah, it was great to, great to get to go uh, racing. Uh, you know, when, when I came back on board here with Bruce, I'd, I'd thought I could get the whole way out, but uh, I've got a team that I'm very friendly with, and they're almost like family, and they, they're willing to work with me schedule-wise and let me be the last guy to get to the track on the weekend and the first one to leave at the end of the weekend. And um, we were able to uh, actually win one this weekend. We've got a great driver in the car, and we've been on the podium pretty much every every race so far, and we finally uh, took the top step this weekend at an amazing event. The Honda Indy Toronto is one of the one of the neatest events in North America. The Canadians really support the uh, Grand Prix style racing. There had to be 150,000 people there. It was really cool. Wow. And, uh, we, our, our car went 140 miles per hour down Lakeshore Boulevard in Toronto, which was really fun to see. <laughs> yeah, it is. And, and didn't get a ticket. No ticket. No, no, it's all closed off. They could go as fast as they want. It's kind of cool. Yeah. yeah. And young kids, that series is a, it's like double A baseball for racing. It's young drivers who want to move up and make it to the IndyCar series, basically to get to the Indy 500 is, is their goal. And so you've got a young, aggressive, uh, large crew of drivers and it's a little less expensive at that level. So it's arguably more competitive because it's more accessible than the higher levels. So we had, uh, over 20 cars in the field, and the top uh, 12 were separated by less than a second. So we uh, wow. we qualified second, and we ended up finishing first. We were uh, 13 hundredths of a second off pole, and uh, we set the fastest lap of the race by just under a tenth. So we're about uh, nine nine hundredths or so off of uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, into the fastest lap. And that was enough to just inch away. I think we won by about two seconds. So it was... Wow. Uh, but the intensity is amazing. Um, and the more I do it and the more I mix the two now, we, you and I have talked about the process that we're able to do in racing where we test things and try things and how that equates. The more I equate it, the looking for tenths of a second is equal to looking for the tenths of a mile per gallon here. Very, very cool stuff. Let's get to a break, and we'll come back, and we will get to your calls and questions here right after this. Stick around. I'm Kevin Rutherford.
Welcome back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. This is the Power Hour. Today I've got Bruce and John and a special guest. Mike is with us over there at Pittsburgh Power. And uh, anything else, or do we want to get to some phone calls? Well, we're going to well, get Mike on get another Mike call. call. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Something sounds funny here. Sounds funny. Okay, you're good on this end. Yep. You could hear us? Sound good. Hear us? Okay. Okay, we're going to get Mike on a landline, and so and you could so tell the girls you see Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh Power calling in to fix Mike. Got it. We will look for that. We just need to make sure he's in another room because we're, we're connected on a pretty high-quality connection right now, and your mic is – it sounds good, but it's really hot. So it's it's picking up. You know, if he's in that room, we're going to get that same feedback. So we will look be in a, He'll be in a different part of, the building. part of the building. Okay. Got it. All right. So we will get to some phone calls. Let's start off in Missouri. Calvin, welcome to the program. Hey, guys. Hey, guys. I got a, I got a Packard MX-13. MX-13. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yep, go ahead. Yep, okay, I sorry. Yep. Okay. I got a 2014 Packard MX-13. And I got a and I got an odd deal. Odd it, uh, uh, didn't know if it's happening or coming or not. I get it in the high elevations, high, like 5,000 like feet and above. And as soon as it hits 90, 90 degrees, I lose about 70 pounds, 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 pounds of boost. And my intake temperature drops 30 degrees. And also, if it gets above 108 or 110, it does the exact same thing. And it also affects the turbo boost, turbo jake off the Anybody have any ideas? I'm, I'm still working I'm on our soundboard right now. We're having some troubles on this end. Okay. Are you are you hearing him or not? What's the very issue very very faintly. Okay. He's very faint. He's very he, faint. Uh, he echoes instantly. Yeah, that's got to be on your end. I'm not getting any of that here. You know, he has you know, a pack car engine. And we don't and have a lot of experience with that engine with right that now. Engine. So, so, I don't quite know don't how quite I want to answer that. Now, yesterday now, I yesterday went to Kenworth. Kenworth. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I'd like to hear this. Here, okay, I'll, I'll I went to Kenworth yesterday, yesterday, and this has been going on since last summer. All last, summer. <clears throat> last year they found a boost sensor sticking at 10 pounds. 10 pounds. And they changed that, and it kind of worked better. So I thought the same thing this year. I, you know, I spent sixty bucks and put a new boost sensor on there, and screwed right up. But yesterday I took it in there, and we've been working with him and the Packard rep. But uh, took it in there yesterday, and we tried to do a recording. I don't know if it found anything or not. He was going to send it off, but also it. Uh, yesterday he forgot the last time I was in there to reset my um, fuel pressure bleed off valve. And so he said he was checking it yesterday, and it was like at 2,200 when it was shutting down. And it, he said it was still in the hundreds, and it should have been at zero. So he reset that and said that might have been it, and maybe the ECM was reading it as too much fuel pressure, and it was with the heat and temperature and the barometric pressure, or, you know, the altitude pressure, maybe that was what's causing it. But I haven't been back in the heat yet. 
So I don't know if that fixed it or not. I didn't know if you guys had ever had that, like in a Cummins or anything or not. I can tell you altitude always affects it. And heat, the story with heat and humidity, heat displaces oxygen and humidity displaces oxygen. So if you're in the southeast and you have high heat and high humidity, you will run hotter. You might lose fuel mileage, and you'll certainly lose power. Mm-hmm. Now, also, on I don't know if you guys got an ECM from PACCAR yet, but they said the barometric pressure sensor is built into the ECM on them. Yes, it is. It's right on the board, and there's a vent in the, in the housing that uh, opens it to atmosphere. Yeah, that's what I was wondering if you guys was aware of that. Um, the, are you guys getting anywhere as far as on the uh, exhaust manifold? Not yet. We believe that uh, our supplier has, has got one available for that right now. I don't have one in stock. Or do we have one here now, Bruce? I, you know, I'm not sure, but I'm going to run over and find out right now. <laughs> Go look now. I'm pretty sure that uh, Sean told me we had one or had one on its way, so we're very close on that. Okay. Um Will you actually gain anything from the DPF as far as fuel mileage or just exhaust temperature? Or well, the flow change? will still help the, help the way that it feeds the turbo. So you're going to spool up a little quicker, even with the DPF on there. Uh, the manifold still a benefit. You know, the, the ceramic coating helps hold some heat in, and the porting help, helps it flow a little bit better. So, and it'll so spool it'll up faster, which will allow it to yeah. And then that allow, then that tells the computer to fuel a little harder as well. Because also the EGR valve plugs into the top of that also too, right? Right. Yes, it does. Yeah, it goes right in the top of the manifold. And then, uh, so you should gain something by that? Yes, definitely. Yeah, manifold's worthwhile. And those manifolds, I believe, are prone to cracking from what I understand. Oh, I'm sure so there's that's too a, much heat in the system. Yeah, there's the benefit to having that the, the ours is a bit heavier, and like I said, it's been ported, and it's got the ceramic coating as well. Okay. Yeah, I didn't know if you guys okay. had ever experienced anything similar to that or not. The Packard rep said he'd heard of it a couple of times, but we can't get it to act up, of course, when I go through the we shop. Can... And in between Amarillo and California, the only shot I got is Albuquerque, and every time I call Albuquerque, of course, they're booked. <laughs> so you don't get that close to Pittsburgh then. So you're trying no, to find I, I mean, I could, uh, but it ain't going to act up up there. We've tried it at Springfield. Right. He even <laughs> took a heat He took. I told him to take a heat gun and try to heat up that temperature sensor, because that temperature sensor on the 680s on the driver's side uh, mirror right. underneath, and that hooks to the ECM also. So he heated right. it up to 118, he said, and it wouldn't act up. So I don't, I don't know if it's just what it is, but it is weird. I'm going to change the intake temperature sensor and just, I mean, it can't be that expensive, and it's got 240,000 miles, so I ain't losing anything that way. Right. Well, that also that ties into the cab control module, so you might want to uh, not overlook something could be going on with that. Maybe getting uh, the information getting to the ECM might not be Correct. what you think it is. So look into that as well. Right. There, he did check some uh, – when he checked the codes, he said there was a bunch of CAN codes, you know, the uh, chassis codes. Yeah, communication, yeah. Well, the CAN codes mean the communication between the chassis, the cab control module, and the ECM. Right. So that could but definitely cause a problem as well. It could. Yep. The yeah, cat? definitely. Okay. okay. Well, I'll tell him that then. Yep. Okay. Yeah, don't overlook that. Okay. Okay. Thank okay. you, John. And we do Wait, have right. one Packard manifold. Excellent. All right. So we've got one in stock already. Yep. 
There we go. Let's go to Tennessee. Michael, welcome to the program. How you doing, Kevin? Good. What's on your mind today? Got two quick questions, sir. I, I've heard this uh, on a. I don't get up to Pittsburgh, so I can't. Really, I know they they do engine flushing up there at Pittsburgh Power, but I don't really get up that way. And I was wondering. I've, I've personally done this to my gas truck. You know, my personal vehicle. Is it okay if you uh, run put automatic transmission fluid in there and run that through the engine for 15, 20 minutes <clears throat> to uh, flush the engine? Or I've also heard like one gallon of diesel or nine gallons of diesel to one gallon of regular oil that, you know, and flushing it out that way. I don't believe it's as effective. The, the chemical that we use is really strong. Uh, ATF does. Have I, yeah, I don't carbon. really get up there. I, I don't get up right. there. I don't want to come. I, I'll come up there for major, you know, repairs. But I don't. I'm not going to come up there just for an engine flush. I mean, I was just hoping that, that something I can do down here, you know, in in Memphis, that that uh, it's kind of like a you know a self-serving type thing. What you, what you can do is a premature oil change. Like what? Oh, how, okay. often you, how often do you change now? Well, I, I I don't change unless you know unless the oil sample says so. I have an OPS on there. So, okay. Well, if you change the oil now and you do a five thousand or an eight thousand mile oil change, you you can get a lot more dirt out if you do a premature. When I buy a used pickup truck or a car, I'll do about three oil changes within two thousand miles of each other, and it's amazing how much extra dirt you get out. From doing that, we're doing an engine flush right now on a. a uh, which engine is that? It's an interesting engine. That is a D deck five. That's a twelve seven. So it's the first one I've seen in the shop. But we had a fellow come in. He had uh, done a head gasket not so long ago, and so had some other work done. And his oil wasn't quite as his uh, oil samples weren't quite where he wanted them to be yet. So he decided to have a flush done and change now. You may find someone close that's not here. Not that I don't want you to come to Pittsburgh. I love you to come to Pittsburgh. But uh, Diesel Diesel Tech sells those machines to everybody. So there could be someone near you, or you may want to look at Diesel Tech's website and see if there's someone that you could get to uh, closer to you or that you pass that's got a Diesel Tech machine that could do the flush for you. All right. Uh, i got a quick question. I just changed over to uh, T6 Synthetic, and and my my engine was using about, a gallon every twelve thousand, probably a little over twelve thousand. Uh, what what kind of consumption rate should I expect to get out of that T six now? Uh, is it a thirty weight or forty weight? Uh, I thought T I thought T six only came in five W forty. It's five forty. T six is five forty. Okay. Hold hold that thought. Let me get to a break. We'll come right back and we will talk about that right after this. Stick around. I'm Kevin Rutherford. Eleven to thirteen. That guy was a thirteen. Welcome back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. 
This is the Power Hour. I've got the guys from Pittsburgh Power helping us out here today. Uh, and we're going to go back to the call about the uh, oil consumption. I'll jump in there. If you're at 12000 uh, with a conventional oil, I wouldn't expect you're going to go much worse than about a gallon every 9000 and then it might even start slowing down after that. That's usually my experience on a healthy engine. I agree with that. Yeah. You know, we've got the um, the two new APIs coming in here by the end of the year, the, the new 30 weights. Um, and if the APIs haven't been confusing enough over the past, this time it's even worse because now we have two APIs. We've never had that before. So we have a new API that will be for the new engines, the brand new engines, 2017 and newer. And then we have another API that's much more backwards compatible for all the older engines. So it's going to, uh, it's going to be critical to know what oil works in your engine. You, you could use the new one in an older engine, but you may see a lot of oil consumption is what they're expecting. Um, it's really a thin, light, 30-weight oil, and the new engines are being built for that oil. Or the oil's being built for those engines, whichever way they want to say that. But uh, now we have two API categories to pay attention to. By the way, the fellow that wants to do the engine flush in Memphis, write this phone number down. The guy's name is Eric Wheeler, and he's working with Rush Peterbilt and Inland Kenworth. But Eric's in the Carolinas, and his number is 702-241-3205. Give Eric a call and see if he has anybody in the Memphis, Tennessee area that has the engine flush machine such as what we have. All right. So, Bruce, I've also got, uh, let me scroll back down the board here. I think we've got Mike. Do we want to bring him on? Yes. Yes. With, there with you. So, all right, Mike, I think we've got you. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Kevin. Great to have you here. Yeah, good to be part of your show. And Mike, do you want to talk about uh, the difference in driving the truck with the variable geometry turbo? Versus the standard turbo, the standard performance 12.7 turbo that we normally use? Well, it just, it just brought it to life. I mean, she really woke it up. You can tell that, you know, the throttle response, uh, the uh, the way I, could, I can grab a hill and just go. Uh, it gave me low-end power as well. I mean, I don't... I, I'll, I don't downshift uh, rarely on a hill, even when I'm when fully loaded. Uh, it just completely changed the uh, couple of the, of the performance qualities of the engine. And this is where we had the 600 horsepower, 1,200 RPM, and 1,800 foot-pounds of torque, correct? Yeah, we actually turned it down. Um, we, we had her going pretty good, and, and uh, we backed off on the horsepower and the torque. Okay. I'm more I'm more into the fuel mileage than I am into, you know, maximum torque and, and, and horsepower. So, and this is also the truck, Kevin, that on the it was the perfect load and the perfect weather. He hit 10.4 mile per gallon. That's impressive. 
but we're not averaging that. So now we're working on trying to get it to average in the tens. There you go. And this is going to be also, this is going to be the truck that gets our first electric drive axle. So, and we're hoping that pushes us up over 12 mile per gallon. That would be big. That would definitely be big. Let's uh, let's see. Let me uh, get back to some calls here because we've got a bunch of them. Let's go to uh, Idaho. James, welcome to the program. Hi, guys. Uh, I got an oil sample there and a question for my about my fast system. All right. Hello? Start with the. Yeah, start with the fast system for those guys, and I'll be looking at the oil sample while you're doing that. Okay. Well, my fast is uh, it's losing it's uh, losing prime. I can sh- when I first the truck's been shut down a while. I activate the key, pump comes on, very quiet, and it's not it's losing prime. It's not circulating any fuel back to the tanks. I start the engine, it'll run run for a few minutes, shut it off, reactivate the ignition, and then it's it's primed and it's returning fuel. And is there, I mean, I'm filling the, fil- the filters full when I change them out. Am I doing something incorrect as far as getting that primed, or do I have a, a, a leak in the my suction lines or, or what? I I don't know how do you lose prime whenever it's it's a self priming pump. That's what I'm that's I'm I'm just at a loss for it because I've the I this is my second fast. The first one I had the two twenty on here. I got a twelve seven Detroit and uh you I've got all your stuff on there except the power box and it's been tuned and it says doing what five eighty or whatever. And so the two twenty was overheating my wiring harness, all kinds of crap and so I Got the the 150, put it on, and it's it's you know it cavitates and it's it's just like it's frustrating. I'm not, I mean it's running fine. I mean I'm, I'm averaging you know about seven and a half for the last 30 days, and uh, but it's just losing that prime and you know I don't I'm not quite sure if it's really a problem or am I just you know nitpicking the thing. I'm not sure, but you know when I just activate the pump, it's not pulling suction. It's not returning fuel until after I start the engine. I'm wondering if you have a major air leak in the line between the fuel tank or a crack in your or your standpipe in the tank. That well I'm thinking it's in the tank cuz I I've had I had all the fuel lines replaced. So I have new fuel lines from the tank to the pump. And uh, so I'm thinking you know, I mean, so that would be my next move, I guess, would be have the, the draw tubes from the tank inspected. Can you get into our shop? Well, I'm, I'm out in the west. I run the northwest. The only way I could get out there would be just either to bobtail it out there. Or, you know, it'd be, a, I mean, I, I, I think, a, you know, when I do some major engine work, I'm coming to you no matter what. If I just got to bobtail it out there, I don't care. Uh, you know, I'm bringing it to you, but uh, I, I got I, I have a difficulty with shops out here. The Kemmer shop I've been working with out here, I no longer work with them. <laughs> so, yeah, they uh, I, I wouldn't know where to really have somebody I could trust to check that out because I'm having trouble finding anybody who 
even understands the fast system. They look at it and say, "Wow, well, we don't even know what that is." You know. What a, What about putting a sight glass? Have you ever seen a sight glass? It's a brass fitting that's about four inches long, and you can see through the center of it. If you put that right before from your suction line, put that between the suction line and the fast, and let's see if you're drawing a lot of air. That would be my next move before I did anything okay. by pulling the standpipes out, okay? Okay. That's awesome. if, where, where, where would I be able to find one of those? What we'll have to do is uh, get you with Sean, our parts manager, and he would be able to tell you where you can buy that. Okay, well, I'll just give him a call sometime here in the next day or so and, and right. uh, get that squared away. Give Sean a call and say, where can I buy a sight glass? Okay, sounds okay. good. Okay, and then you need okay, to know thanks. if you have number 8 hose or number 10, but uh, the ones that we have here are 10, and what else, John? Do we have number 8? Number 10 is all I think. we Do we have an 8 also? I'm not sure, but I kind of just see a 10 back there. Okay. You could make yeah. one quickly. You could get a couple of push lock fittings and some clear hose also. Uh, you could get some push lock um, and some clear hose and, and put it on there and use that to take a look at it if uh, you know if you're you're in a hurry to do it. It sounds like right. you could also have a restriction if there's something rolling around on the bottom of the tank is actually sealing off that uh, the inlet. It could do that as well. Right. Okay. Because yeah, I, I I bought a new pump thinking because the other one was making all kinds of racket and getting hot and all. You know, it's like you know what. You know, because I had back pressure, my tanks were pressurizing, and I I uh, got that problem solved. And I thought, well, maybe I burned that motor up trying to push back against all that pressurized tanks. I, you know, so I just been kind of throwing darts in the dark here, trying to figure out what the hell's going on. Here's one last thing: Do you have the correct fuel filters on there? Because the first one is supposed to be a water separator. And that's a very high micron. If you have right. a low micron on the suction side of the fast, you're going to have this symptom with the hot motor. Well, I, I have the uh, the 101 on one on the the draw side, the first filter, and then the uh, the 303, the 3003 on the suction side to the OEM pump. That's all I have. The, yeah. All right, hold that thought. We'll uh, we'll get to a break. We will come back and get to more of your calls and questions right after this. When we come back, James, I'll give you a quick rundown on that oil sample. Stick around. We'll be right back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. Quick heads up, we're heading into the fourth segment. Uh, we're going to come back and do an hour of general questions as well. It looks like we've got a lot of questions on hold right now, so uh, don't hang up when I say goodnight, goodbye, all that stuff at the end of this segment. We'll come back and do another hour. Here we go. Welcome back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. This is the Power Hour. I've got the guys here from Pittsburgh Power helping me out. And uh, I'm going to go back and 
give James a quick rundown on his oil sample here. James, a couple things. What year is this engine? It is a, a 97 D-Deck 3. Okay. And just a uh, little over 900,000 miles. Is that original or on an in-frame? Well, I bought the truck, and they said they had done like a bare bones in-frame, but they didn't have any paperwork on it. You know, and uh, I had a dynode, and all the blow-by numbers were good and all that. So it's about 913000 on the engine. I'm just going with that without an end frame on it. Okay. When I look back at the February sample and the September of last year's sample, you had really high silicon showing up. Did we ever figure out why? It's down now. It's not down as low as I'd like to see it, but it's not as bad as it was. Did we figure out what that was? Yeah, the the silicon was, uh, I had uh, oil pan gasket replaced. They, they were into it a couple of different times. Okay. And, and so I changed the oil, I changed the oil after the second high silicon. And it's so this sample that we're looking at now is the second, it's like uh, I sample every 20,000. So I, right. I changed the oil after that high silicon level. And uh, everything was good on the last one, and then all of a sudden I had the high lead and high uh, iron numbers there, and I just like, okay, I, I changed all my filters, and I, I didn't change the oil, I just changed all my filters. What are you using for an air filter? I have, I have the uh, Fleet Air, and then uh, I just cleared it, I just changed the wraps on it. I over-oiled, I think my... My soot level went up just a couple of tenths of a point there or whatever, and I, I had over-oiled my last wrap. And, uh, yeah. I, I was actually going to recommend you oil it a little heavier, so it's, I'm glad to hear that you over-oiled it because we're still seeing silicon at, at like 15 last time, 18 this time. They don't flag it. They consider that a zero. I just don't like seeing anything over 10. And it, it normally yeah. keep things under 10. And the silicon is what causes metal, wear metals. It, it's abrasive. So, um, and your wear metals aren't horrible. 31 on the iron, you've got 40,000 miles on the oil. That's not a big deal at all. The 21 on the lead and the 3 on the tin, that's a little more concerning. We are getting some wear metals. And... The obvious answer was the silicon. I don't see any other reason why we should. There's no fuel dilution. There's no coolant. Um, I don't know why I saw the jump in wear metals other than um, the silicon that's been in there. Right. Because, I mean, the only thing I did differently was I started using a different, uh, I started using uh, a different oil as makeup oil. And just because this thing is going, I mean, I've got a, a head gasket seeping oil on it, and uh, I, I'm going through a gallon of oil about every 5,000 miles. Uh, yeah. And so, so either either they did a really, really lousy in-frame on this, or there just wasn't an in-frame at all. I mean, this engine yeah, is starting to sound much more like a million-mile engine than one that's been rebuilt any time recently. Yeah, I'm just going. I'm, I'm just going. I'm just forgetting about them in frame. I'm going on the assumption that it hasn't been done. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. You and know I, what? I, 
you know what I would do right now? I know you've only got 40,000 miles on the soil, but I, I would change it and let's do a reset and, and let's see if any of this stuff clears up. Nothing's horrible right now, but it's a little confusing. So let's, let's change that oil and do a reset. Let's, uh, Wait, Kevin, Kevin. Yeah, go ahead. I have the two filter numbers for the fast system form. Okay, go ahead. Okay. The primary filter, that'll be the one on the right side. That's the fuel water separator. That is FS, Frank Sam 1212. Those are fleet guard numbers. And the fuel filter that does the separation is the one on the left as you're looking at it. That's FF, Frank Frank 185. Got it. Very good. Let's go to Illinois. Dan, welcome to the program. Afternoon, gentlemen. I've got a Packard motor from day one. It's a it's in a Kenworth T660 and uh, 2012. And from day one that we've had this engine, it seems like this thing just heats up entirely uh, too fast uh, as far as water temperature. Um, the oil temperature runs about 220 all the time even though the water temperature stays down around 189, uh, 190, right around there. Um, it seems to be more uh, apt to do it when it has uh, uh, like a heavier load, say 30,000 pounds or heavier load on them. And the water temperature gets up to about 210, and the, the fan kicks on constantly. It'll cool back down, but the oil temperature will keep raising up. And it just seems to have, like, a lot of sluggish power. You can't hold the gears very long when it has them heavier loads. And in the uh, wintertime, it'll even do it from Wisconsin, where I'm from. It'll pull in certain hills when it's 20 degrees out. The oil or the water temperature will heat up enough to kick the fan on in the wintertime. Uh, would you guys have any suggestion on what that could be? We've changed the thermostat and the water pump on it. Okay. What is the temperature of the thermostat? Uh, the the one that would have been factoring, I think they got it set at like 195, I think it is. This, or okay. the uh, kicks on, so, the, the water temperature, the fan kicks on at uh, 210. Okay. If it's a 195 stat, it takes 16 degrees to fully open. So that's right where they want it to be. If you want it lower, see if you can get a 180 stat and put in it. And, and that will lower you another 15 degrees. As far as the oil temperature goes, most engines have a thermostat in the oil cooler that doesn't open until 235 degrees. So I really don't think you're having a heat issue. You're just seeing higher heats than your previous engine had. Okay, but what, why would this, like, say, in the middle of the wintertime, when it's, say, uh, 10 degrees out to 30 degrees out, and I'm in Wisconsin and just starting out maybe 30 miles into the trip and pulling a, a medium-grade hill, and the water temperature heats up enough to turn my fan on. I've never had a truck ever, no matter what the engine size, ever have the fan kick on at that low a temperature. Your last engine, what was it? 
it was a uh, C-13 cat. C-13. And on the level, what did that run temperature-wise, coolant temp? The exact same at uh, 190, right around there. Yeah, so they have 190 stats in. So they fully open at 206. Okay. And it was a smaller engine. That C-13 was a smaller engine than this Packard 455. Can you get it to western Pennsylvania? Do you ever get over this way? I get over to Pennsylvania more than I like. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't nice. It's in the bad place. <laughs> We're very low in crime here, right? not here yeah. in the country. <laughs> yeah. And it's a great motorcycle roads, too. Maybe not <laughs> ideal for a semi-truck, but it's great for a motorcycle. Yeah. Um, and like I said, we've had this issue from day one, and we've had the this engine uh, quote-unquote uh, altered, so and it didn't make a difference. Okay. So, well, why don't you try to get it in here and let John work with the lead engineer at Packard that he's personal friends with on it. Okay. I didn't know if there was a possibility that there was a, a timing issue uh, or I was having um, a possible, like, a, a cracked head issue or it was building up no, no. a lot of heat. It only takes six miles to get oil hot. So you say you said thirty miles. So oil should be up to operating temperature in thirty miles. If you even notice new cars today, you know cars back in the fifties and sixties in the winter time you'd start them. You'd go sometimes a mile before you had heat out of the heater. Today you go a block and a half, and the heater's throwing heat in the winter time. So they're bringing temperatures up a whole lot quicker than they used to. Yeah, I'm not sure that I'm hearing anything all that out of the ordinary on this one. I mean, this one might yeah. be running exactly the way they want it to run. Yeah, the the oil temp, I'm sure, is where they want it. That uh, doesn't frighten yeah. me at all. You could you could run oil temp a lot hotter than people realize. It doesn't run the same temperature as your coolant. Uh, I know, you know, we'll run our race cars right up to 300 degrees. Now, I don't think you want to do that for an yeah. extended amount of time, but 250 would not frighten me a bit in a truck, not one bit no. on the oil. Well, that's going to do it, guys. We are all out of time. We blew right through that show again. Thanks, everybody, from Pittsburgh Power, as always, coming on and helping us. Thanks, Mike, from Breaking11.com. We didn't get to talk to you a lot, but uh, maybe we'll get you back. That's a great project you've got going on there. Um, We didn't get to all the questions, but we'll do it again next time. Thanks for joining us. Be safe. Be profitable. Be fit and healthy. Always do the hard work and master the journey. I'm Kevin Rutherford. All right, everybody, let me give you a quick rundown here. We're... uh... We're going to do an hour of general questions. I'll try to answer some of the holdover engine questions as well. Uh, And it looks like we've got quite a few questions. You may be able to jump in. If you've got a question, a comment, a topic about anything at all, if you press one on your phone right away, might be able to get to you. We'll, uh, We'll see what we can do. Here we go.
your money, your taxes, your truck, and your road to success in the trucking industry. This is Trucking Business and Beyond, the show that puts the money where it belongs, back in your pocket. Welcome to my world. I'm your host, Kevin Rutherford. The website is letstruck.com. The show is all about the business of trucking. We take your calls and answer your questions about trucks, money, fuel mileage, maintenance, tires, taxes, technology, health and fitness on the road, getting started as an owner-operator, finding freight, working with brokers, getting your own authority. The list goes on and on. If you've got a question about anything at all, we'll tackle it here on this show. All you have to do is pick up the phone and ask your question. We're going to get to those questions in just a little bit. I've been working on a book review, and uh, I want to continue on with that. The book is The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, one of my favorite books of all time, one of the most influential books that I've ever read, and a book that I still go back to a lot. In fact, I have a uh, another book sitting on my desk, and it's called Daily Reflections for Highly Effective People. And it's one of those books where you turn the page every day and there's a lesson for the day. And the lessons all apply back to the book. So the companion book I have here wouldn't do you much good if you haven't read the original book. Um, so I've been working my way through the seven habits. Each chapter is a habit. And the first three, be proactive, begin with the end in mind, and put first things first. Those are all about what Stephen Covey refers to as self-mastery. Those are things that you have to work on on your own. Um, And then we move into the next three habits, which he calls interdependence. And that's all about working with others. So first, you work on yourself, the first three habits. And then you work on your ability and your skills to work with others. So habit number four, think win-win. So this is a tough one for a lot of people. Um, This win-win philosophy came out of a, a... kind of a new way of thinking about negotiation. Many of us, when we think of negotiation and working with other people, we tend to think win-lose. We tend to think if I get more, the other person has to get less, or if the other person gets more, then I have to get less. And that's just lousy thinking. Um, What was Zig Ziglar saying? Stinking thinking? Because that's just a, a game that if there's a winner, then there has to be a loser. And that's great in sports. In fact, I love competition. But in business and in relationships and in life, we don't want to win at somebody else's loss. Now, you may think that you do, and there may be times when that strategy works. But I like thinking long-term in business. I like thinking long-term in relationships. And you can't think win-lose. It just, it's not a good way to, to do things. So you have to think win-win. And 
you know, it's easy to say it, it's much more difficult to know what that really means. Let, let me give you a, a simple example from negotiating for a truck. Let's say I'm in the market for a truck and I'm buying it from a dealer and we're pretty well decided. I want the truck. I'm going to buy it. We're trying to negotiate the best deal we can. If the only thing we negotiate on is price, then price is always a win-lose proposition. Let's say the dealer wants to get 40000 for his truck, and I only want to pay 35000 This is a win-lose negotiation. The closer we get to 35000 the more I win, the more the dealer loses. The closer we get to 40000 the more the dealer wins, the more I lose. That's a typical win-lose scenario. If you're negotiating just money, it's win-lose. Let me give you a real simple example of how we can turn this into a win-win. Let's say that this dealer also happens to have a shop, a garage, and I can now negotiate. Let's say that I normally pay $300 for a service. Well, I could negotiate to get the first whatever, pick a number. The first five services, the first 10 services, whatever I can negotiate, I'm going to negotiate those at, let's say, $200. So here's my offer, Mr. Dealer. Um, I'll pay 37000 instead of thirty-five, and I want you to do my first 10 services at $200 whatever numbers you can make work. Here's why that's a win-win. Because I clearly, if I would have paid 300 for a service and I only have to pay 200 for 10 services, I clearly have a $1,000 advantage. But that did not cost the dealer $1,000. Because the dealer doesn't it doesn't cost him two or $300 to do a service. It costs way less than that. He's throwing this in. He's not losing any money doing this. I would have gotten my services done at my other shop, so he's not even losing any business or losing any revenue. He's picking up some business. He's just not making as much of a profit on it as he normally would. But if he discounts the truck $2,000 – or even $1,000. He just, the $1,000 is gone. That's why it's a win-lose. So we look for things to negotiate that provide value to one party, and they don't cost the other party as much. So when I sold my last truck, I had a bunch of spare parts, stuff I had been collecting over the years, and it was my last truck, I wasn't going to need any of these things anymore. There were things like batteries and, you know, wiper blades and just spare stuff I had around. So when I looked at it and added it all up, there was a lot of value there. Well, I couldn't go sell that stuff on the open market and get that money back out of it. I mean, I could have tried to sell it on eBay, but you're not going to ship batteries. So trying to sell a bunch of miscellaneous stuff is time-consuming. I'm probably not going to get that much money for it. 
So these things to me, I've already spent the money. I'm not going to be able to recover it. But to the person buying that truck, all of those spare parts have a lot of value. If they had to go out on the market and buy them, it would cost, let's just say it was $2,000 worth of parts. Well, I gave it to him for $1,000 more. That's a win-win. I could have never gotten $1,000 selling him on the street, and he couldn't ever buy those anywhere for $1,000. That's a win-win kind of negotiation. Those are really simple examples, but I think you get the idea. You, you look for things that can be negotiated in a deal that provide more value to one party than they cost the other party. See, money is never like that. Money has an absolute value. If we only negotiate money, it's always a win-lose. We have to find things. It, 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 you can also think about like a bartering system. So if you have a skill, let's say you're really good at something, Think about how you can use that skill in negotiations. And I, I'm going to use just some kind of, you know, off-the-wall examples here. Um, maybe you or your wife or somebody in your family is a really good gardener or a landscaper. And somebody you're negotiating with on something totally different, has nothing to do with gardening, landscaping, anything. But maybe you offer them your services in a barter to reduce the cost. Again, we can get to a place where it's not costing you money. It's costing you time. I get that. But maybe you have more time than you have money. So think about what kind of skills you have or what you could offer to do for somebody else Rather than always just think money. So that's win-win in negotiation. But negotiation isn't just about deals. We negotiate all day, every day. So think about interacting with people as negotiation, because that's what it is. And then always try to think win-win. Don't try to think I win you lose and, and we do a lot of that so that's what habit number four is all about win win rather than if I get more you have to get less all right so uh, we're going to come back after the break and get to your calls and questions and um, we'll be telling you more about where you can find the full book reviews when we finish this first one in uh, the next couple shows Stick around. We'll be right back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. Welcome back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. We're going to get to some phone calls. Let's start off in South Carolina. Mike, welcome to the program. 
Hey, Kevin. How hey, are you? Good. What can I help you with today? I had a discussion that you had on uh, some time back uh, about heart, heart ban and uh, those acid supplements that you have on stomach acid. And I was wondering if I'm, I'm probably a candidate for that because <clears throat> I've never really tested my stomach acid. And I have had heart ban all my life, but it's fairly mild. I just use a couple of, uh, um, what do you call those, tons, and it goes away, yeah, and I'm not getting it for, them for a whole week. Right. So, and I, I also tend to regurgitate food. When I eat, it comes back, but it's never caused a problem. I've had it all my life, and uh, I was wondering what you, uh, your evaluation would be if uh, I would need to test my stomach acid and see maybe I can cure my heartburn or something. <laughs> Yeah, I think you could. I think you are the ideal candidate because you, you definitely have uh, an issue, and I'll explain it in a minute, but it's not very severe. So yours is fairly easy to fix, so it makes you a really good candidate. And, and so here's the thing. The, the reason you get a little bit of heartburn, the reason you get a little bit of the reflux and the food coming back up, is the valve at the bottom of your esophagus, which is the top of your stomach, it's a flap. And when you swallow food, the flap opens so the food can go in, and then it should close, and it should close completely. And if it does, then you would never, ever get heartburn. You wouldn't have any kind of reflux. None of that would be happening. Well, the okay. signal that makes that valve close is when the pH of our stomach is low enough the way it should be. If it's not strong enough, if our stomach acid is weak or we don't have enough of it, that valve won't close. And, and sometimes it'll close halfway. Sometimes it'll stay wide open, and that's the people who have really bad issues. Um, yours is probably just not closing completely. You're getting a little bit of reflux back up into the esophagus. That's the burn you feel. And something like Tums is an antacid. So the acid is sitting right at the top of your stomach. That's what's causing the heartburn. The Tums hits it, neutralizes the acid, and you feel better. The problem okay. is you just neutralized your stomach's ability to digest food because we need really strong stomach acid to digest our food and get all of our nutrients out of it. And we need really strong stomach acid to make that valve close. But instead, you know, the pharmaceutical companies and the companies that sell Tums, they like to sell their product and make money. So they, you know, have lots of marketing. So they run lots of commercials. They've been doing that all our life. And you get instant yeah. relief. I mean, this is quick yeah. and easy. You follow them, you feel better. Why wouldn't I do this? Well, we wouldn't do right. it once we understand the downside in the longer you do this, the worse things get. So you're, you've got a pretty mild case. The other thing I'd love about this is you can test your own stomach acid. This isn't something we have to go to a doctor for. It's not something we even have to send off to a lab for. We can do what's called the, the, an acid challenge and, and we'll know. So you would sit down to a meal and you would have these hydrochloric acid supplements, and, and we carry those. You can get them in a health food store. I really like ours. Um, and you take one 
right as you start eating. And you wait just a couple minutes. And what you're looking for is you're looking for like a warmth right in the pit of your stomach, a little bit of heat. We don't want it to burn. It's not going to be unpleasant. You're just going to feel some warmth. So if you take one and you don't feel that warmth after a couple minutes, you take another one and you keep eating and you wait a couple minutes and you keep repeating that until you feel that warmth. And let's say it's five tablets that it takes or capsules. Well, then your dose is actually four. It's, your dose okay. will be one less. We don't want you taking so much that you feel it. But we want to know how much it takes for you to feel it. And then one less is your dose. Then what happens is now you've got really good, strong stomach acid. Your body will digest its food properly. You'll get all the nutrients you need. And now you have the nutrients your body needs to make its own stomach acid. So over time, and it doesn't take long, usually just a couple weeks, you'll start feeling in this last example where four was your dose. At four, you'll start to feel that burn. So you'll back off to three. Maybe a week later, you'll start to feel it again with only three. And then you'll move to two. And when we get down to one, you can usually just quit after that. But it, we can also go down to a lower dose supplement and keep working down. But I find most people, once they get down to one, they can usually either keep taking one and maybe you get a little burn, nothing major. And then usually after that, you can just quit. And, and your body How many will come be, in a bottle? Um, we sell either 90 or 180. Okay, so one bowl is quite enough for the first diet. You know, for somebody like you, yours is a really mild case. If you're eating a good diet, a good clean diet, and you start supplementing with the HCL, a bottle of 90 might get you through. A bottle of 180 certainly would, and, and you probably yeah. wouldn't have to take it after that bottle anymore. Yeah, I'm, I'm eating a healthy diet. I mean, I'm on the ketogenic diet. Thank you for your advice. So I'm fairly healthy elsewhere, but it's, from time to time I still get this little problem. And I just want to be able to take it away. Yeah. And, covering and, it up with a drug. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, it, and it's yeah. even if somebody yeah. said, oh, look, I get a little bit of heartburn, I can just live with it. It's not bothering me. It's not the fact that it's bothering you or not. It's a sign that something isn't right. And it, it it, you're not digesting your food properly, which means you're not getting all the nutrients. So let's just fix it. It's easy to fix. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So uh, can I order that online or how does it work? I will put you back on hold and uh, Kim will pick you up and she will get you taken care of if you want. Um, or she'll get your information. We can call you after the show. Uh, looks like I have plenty of calls. So if she wants to, do it right now, Kim. You could do that. Up to you. Let's go to Kansas. Adam, welcome to the program. Hey, Kim. How you doing? Good. What's on your mind today? Oh, well, I'm getting ready to buy a new engine. It's a Detroit. This one's a DDAC-3. It's going to be replaced with DDAC-4, but I'm going to turn it back into the DDAC-4. Okay. But I know, I know the guy that rebuilt the engine, and he said it is rebuilt for low knock. So I was looking that up, and it turns out there's actually special pistons for a low knox rebuild. Yes. And what I was wanting to know was, do you think the 
Yes, it will. They they okay. can kind of tune around that. Okay. Alrighty, that was pretty much my question. Got it. Yeah, give them a call. They'll give you all the details. But yeah, they can definitely still tune that engine and give you really amazing results. That's that's the engine that I have a lot of personal experience with. And I've played around with their tunings on that engine, and they are amazing. I've always loved that engine. You put a Pittsburgh Power Tune on that thing, and it is just an amazing engine. Let's go to Ohio. Alan, welcome to the program. How are you doing today, Kevin? Good. What's on your mind? I got it. Well, listening to you, I need a couple of answers. On a okay. 14-liter Detroit, uh, rebuild was just about 200, 225,000 miles ago. Should I be looking at running the overhead on that? Um, yes and no, and here's why I say that. Are you doing oil samples? No, I'm not. I, I've, I've, I've got my OPS-1 ordered, and when it comes in with the kits and stuff, I'll, I'll start with the samples. Let's I do this. My oil about every twelve five. Okay. Um, so the the OPS, the EcoPure, is going to save you a ton of money. It's going to get you into an oil sample program, which is good. Um, I would do this if you're not seeing any real symptoms, like you don't have a lot of noise coming from the top end. You're you're not getting you know any kind of outrageous symptom right now. You're just wondering if you should do this. I would just do an oil sample. Because here's the thing. If I look at an oil sample and we have no soot, no fuel dilution, I, I don't want to touch the overhead. I mean, if the overhead's out, we're going to see it. We're going to get increased soot because the timing will be off. We won't be burning the fuel completely. If we see a really low soot number, then no, I, I would rather somebody keeps their hands out of there. So okay. you know, an oil sample's good anyway, and you're going to do one. We can kill two birds with one stone here um, because we could probably save you the cost of the overhead if it turns out you just don't really need one. Um, I know you had another question. Let me get to a break, and I'll come to you right after this. Stick around. We'll be right back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. Welcome back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. The website is Let'sTruck.com. I'm going to go back to Alan in Ohio. Alan, what else you got? All right. My next question has to deal with fuel. Um, I you normally get my fuel at a TA or a petrol, and I have noticed that I get 
like almost a half a mile per gallon better fuel mileage out of the petrol fuel than I do out of the TA. Okay, so let's talk about that. Are, are these the same two stops, like one TA I, and one Petro? I, I, it's two Petros and two TAs. Okay. But they're, so, it's always the same. I mean, it's it's the same runs. I, I'm pretty much yeah. dedicated every week. So here's the thing, and I've, I've, we've had this conversation over the years, and I have always asked for people who know about fuel supply and fuel delivery, call me so I can talk to them about this. And I just had somebody call me this past weekend. And the guy was really knowledgeable. He's been delivering fuel for a long time. And he said, here's the thing. We have so many refineries. We have so many oil companies. And we have so many truck stops. And everybody gets their fuel from everybody else. There are no dedicated, you know, fuel supply lines. So nobody really has different fuel than anybody else. Nobody really has better fuel than anybody else. Nobody has consistent fuel. They're getting it from one place one day, totally different place the next day. The only thing that he said does happen is each truck stop, when they order fuel, they could order a blend of a premium fuel where they dump some additive in it. But I will promise you that additive never improves fuel economy, and certainly not by a half mile per gallon, and not by the quantities that they're putting in their fuel. The additives are primarily just to keep things clean. You know, premium diesel will keep your injectors a little cleaner, will keep your fuel lines and your tanks a little cleaner. So the one case where an additive could help is let's say you have a really dirty fuel system. It's just built up over a long period of time. It hasn't been taken care of. And you run an additive through with a really good detergent. Well, then it cleans the fuel system and your fuel economy goes up. But that only happens once. And then that's going to be your new fuel mileage because everything is right now. It's nice and clean. So I, I believe you because I've had other people tell me this, but there is no logical reason why that would be unless there's one other possibility. And that's why I asked, are we talking about, you know, just a couple locations? Because some people will tell me I run all over the country and if I fuel at Love's, I get better fuel economy than I fuel at TA. Well, that makes zero sense. In your case, the only thing that could possibly be a logical explanation is that the fuel stops where you're getting the worst fuel economy have just dirty, contaminated tanks. But even then, we have filters all through the system. We have filters on the pumps. We have filters in the tanks. We have filters on your truck. So I, I, I get what you're saying, and I've asked everybody I can think of to ask this question, and there is no logical reason why this should happen. I've got a fast system on, I, I put on my, my truck, and my worst fuel mileage comes from the TA in Pembroke, New York. Now, I live a little ways from the Petro in Waterloo, New York, where I get my best fuel mileage, hands down. I, I pull my best fuel mileage out of it, and then the Petro in North Baltimore, Ohio, where I'm headed right now, 
is number two. And then the TA in Kingsville, New- Ohio, is the third worst. You know, let, it, let me... it, 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 it is religious. I track my numbers every tank, and it's it goes from 6.4, 6.5, sometimes down to 5.7 or 5.6 at the Pembroke TA. And I have asked them, you know, hey, what is wrong with your fuel? As soon right. as I switch to one of the other ones, I'm right back where I should be. And my loads are consistent. They're, they're the same loads. There's no change in them. Yeah, that I believe you, especially when somebody tells me they track it that closely, they have all the numbers. I get it. I believe you. I, and I have been searching for the answer to this for years. Everybody tells me it's just not logical. It doesn't make any sense. There's no explanation why that should happen. I, I've, the only time I've ever had any, anybody ever tell me something that made sense with this, and I, I was wondering if you could, you know, if you'd had knowledge with it, is if they just got a delivery, it stirs everything up in the tank. Yeah, I've heard that, but and again, I don't see how I, I don't see how have, I could. Every time I could get it at the right. one fuel at the TA in Pembroke, New York, and continually get bad fuel mileage. Right, but let's say that let's say that was happening. Let let's just take that to an extreme, and let's say that you just time it so that you always get fuel there right after they deliver, and the tanks all stirred up. We still have filters. Filters trap anything that's going big enough to get stirred up. You have a filter on the tank, you have a filter on the pump, you have a filter in your truck, multiple filters that would get all this dirt out. So we're st- And you have a FAS. I mean, you're literally polishing your fuel. So you're delivering clean fuel to your cylinders no matter what it's like when we get it, no matter what it was like in the tank. So, you know, maybe somebody would say, oh, but if you get enough dirt, you're going to clog the filter, you're going to restrict flow, that could affect fuel economy. It could, not by a half mile per gallon, and that then your fuel economy would stay bad until you replaced your filters. And you're saying it, tomorrow you can go to the other place and your fuel economy comes back up again. So the only logical answer would be to say, well, that place must have better fuel or this place must have worse fuel. The problem with that is they're both just as likely getting their fuel from the same place today and tomorrow, opposite places next time. There's no rhyme or reason. They can't have better fuel. It's all coming from the same place. You know, it, and it, honestly, here's and the it, thing. Fuel is fuel. Diesel fuel is all refined the same way. The only thing that could make a difference in diesel fuel is the additive we put in. Or in the wintertime, the blend can make a difference because you're going to a lighter weight, like a number one or a kerosene, and that just doesn't have as much energy in it. We know when you go to a lighter blend, you lose fuel economy. But that's not what we're talking about here. I'm stumped, just like you are. I keep asking people, and nobody has an explanation as to why this would happen. You know, I I used to get my fuel. We got it. and a fuel card program with the company I'm leased on to. And we just get astronomical discounts at the TAs and the Petros. It just, but I used to purchase all my fuel at the quick fills in the Northeast. You know, Best let, me, let me throw I, out. I ever got. 
Let me throw out one other possibility, kind of a hypothesis. And anybody listening to this, if you either think I'm on the right track or you think I'm totally on the wrong track, send me an email and let me know. Send it to support at letstruck.com. Let's, let's think about one other possibility. Do you remember when there was a big deal in the industry about fuel temperature? Absolutely. So to the people who don't understand this, let, let me explain it to them. If you take a gallon of fuel or a gallon of any liquid, but we're talking about fuel right now, and the, let's say the outside temperature, and you've got this gallon of fuel in a container, and the outside temperature is 110 degrees, just a scorching hot day, and you were to measure the level of where that gallon reaches in the container, and then you were to take that same exact amount of fuel and put it in a very cold place, it would take up less space because as we warm things up, they expand, and as we cool them down, they contract. Now, our fuel pumps do not compensate for temperature. So what they claim is that the pump may register 100 gallons, but if the fuel was really hot, it might actually be only 96 gallons, something less than what you think you got. Because so maybe the there's pump, a colder tank, colder tank that, at, the, at the two... <laughs> That's what versus the two TAs. I, that's what it, it's my stretch. Is that possible? Do everybody <laughs> does everybody bury their tanks at the same level so they would be the same temperature? Well, no. There have to be some type of code for that for the for the tanks to be buried. Right. At. That that's what I'm thinking. So maybe I'm just off on some wild goose chase that doesn't make sense. But it um um like reaching. Is it possible? Is it possible, you know, pumps are supposed to be calibrated and tested. Maybe you're just not getting the same amount of fuel for some reason, whether it's temperature or pump problem or whatever. I don't know. Stick around. We'll be right back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. Welcome back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. We're uh, down to the final segment. I'm going to get back to the phone calls. Um, You know, Matt just sent me a message kind of thinking the same thing, that maybe it's not the tank temperature. Maybe it's the pumps. Maybe they're aerating it more. Maybe they're not as calibrated as they should be. Um, I I know those are supposed to be tested, but there's got to be some reason here. We haven't found it yet. Nothing makes any logical sense on this issue. Let's head off to Florida. Jim, welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks, Kevin, yeah, for, thanks taking for taking my call. Uh, what can I help uh, you? I was, I was looking at uh, possibly purchasing an O2 FLD with a Detroit uh, series engine in it, 60 series. 
Okay. And I was just wondering, it's got a hundred and three. Uh, it's got a million three hundred miles on it. And I was just wondering if that's something that I really would have to worry about. If it's um, well taken care of. Do you know? Is that original? Have they ever done the in frame? That's original. And that's well original. taken care of in the guy's original shop. I mean, he's okay. So I, I, that would not bother me at all. In fact, I kind of like that. 1.3 is about the average lifespan on a Series 60. I've owned a bunch of them. They almost always make it to 1.2, 1.3 without, any, without doing anything extraordinary. Like mine, I always had bypass filters on mine. Many of mine, by the time they got to 1.2, 1.3 million miles, had only had three or four oil changes. I mean, that's how I ran, and they would still make it that long. And usually they had life left in them. That's just when I tended to trade them in. Um, right. I, I didn't normally do in-frames. I had drivers in the truck, so I wanted to keep the trucks upgraded. And prior to emissions, every time I bought a new truck, technology got better. I got smarter. I kept getting better and better fuel economy. And so that was why I had that cycle. Um so you're probably at the pretty close to the end of its useful life. We do see a really well taken care of Series 60 make it 1.5 once in a while. But you're, you're certainly, you need to be, if you're going to buy this truck, and, and we'll talk a little bit more about some other details, you just need to be prepared to do that in frame. It's going to happen sometime soon. Now we could, if, if, If the owner will let you take the truck to an engine shop, um, we can do what's called a a blow-by test or a crankcase pressure test, and that'll tell us the condition of the cylinder somewhat. Um, It's not 100% accurate, but it gives us a pretty good idea. I mean, I could usually look at a blow-by test and say, you know, if you buy this truck, you can probably squeeze another year out of the engine. Or you might look at it and go, you know what? three months and we're probably going to need to do an in-frame on this thing. That doesn't scare me. I like an engine that is the original owner, hasn't been touched. The block is probably in really good condition, so it's going to be an easy rebuild. All that matters to me is am I getting the right value? So if I'm looking at an O2 and it needs an in-frame sometime soon, Unless this truck is super, super clean and has lots of things I want, 15000 would probably be my upper limit on a truck like this. Normally, these kind of trucks are selling for 8 to 10. But if it's really, really clean and it, it, you know, there are reasons I would pay more, you just have to be aware that, you know, after you buy the truck, you need to have another 20000 available to you because you're going to need it soon for an in-frame. Right. right. The other thing, too, is is that this is a super single, too, or a single axle. Single axle. Now, believe it or not, that actually holds its price better than a tandem. Okay. You usually end up... And it's got room to put a lift axle on. Okay. 
Yeah, you usually end up paying a premium for a single axle. They're harder to find. There's not as many of them around. They usually end up holding their price a little better. Not a lot. Um, and if there's room for a lift axle, this might be a great truck. How much do they want for it? Uh, 85 Oh, yeah, I'd be all over this. <laughs> all right. That's kind of what I was thinking. Cause the thing that attracted me to it was the... Uh, the body of it's in excellent shape, and so is the interior. Oh, yeah. I, I'd be all truck. over this thing. Okay. All right. I appreciate your time, then. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for the call. Let's head off to Michigan. Adrian, welcome to the program. Hi, Kevin. How are you doing? Doing good. What can I help you with today? Well, uh, last show I heard Bruce talking about an electric drive axle, and uh, that really sparked my interest. wanted to know more about that, if you had any information on it. I do. Um, and that was John, actually. John Walco, their new engineer over there. Really, really brilliant guy. Um, one of my favorite things about doing the uh, Power Hour show now is John comes on with us every week, and I learn something every time I talk to John. John's just an amazing engineer, fabricator. He's got amazing ideas. He worked in racing for years, still does. Uh, and I just love talking to him. I always learn something. And him and I think a lot alike. And he's he's got that ability to take the ideas, the kind of stuff that I've been thinking about for years, and he thinks about this stuff. He fabricates it. He, he puts it into the real world and makes it work. So I love that. That's exciting. Here's what they're doing. Um, and there's actually another company near them working on a similar idea. So I believe they're like sharing some ideas. And the other company is working on a trailer axle that's going to be powered but totally independent from everything. It doesn't need any connections to the tractor, doesn't need anything. And here's what it does. It's basically very similar to our hybrid cars. Our hybrid cars use what's called regenerative braking. So the energy of braking is captured back into the batteries and then used to power electric motors. Now, it works really good on cars, especially cars that run around the city, because you do a lot of braking. The more stop-and-go driving you do, the more effective and efficient a hybrid is. The reason these technologies haven't really made it to the trucking market very well is because a typical over-the-road truck might not touch its brake for, for four hours. You know, you get on the highway and you go. So it's a little trickier to do in the trucking industry, but the technology is getting better, the batteries are getting better, and we're starting to think that maybe we're right on the edge of this technology actually working. So really, and, and John and, and Pittsburgh Power, they're doing the same thing, but their idea is, it's really more targeted to owner-operators who may not even own a trailer. Um, everybody owns a tractor if you're an owner-operator, obviously. So their idea is similar to what we've been doing, turning 6x4s into 6x2s, but instead of using a lift axle, they're going to use a powered axle. 
a hybrid electric drive axle. So when the truck is stopping, they're going to regenerate that power back to the batteries and then drive this independent axle with motors from those batteries to assist the truck itself. And that should improve fuel economy. Uh, again, the more stop and go you do, the, the more effective this becomes. So we are seeing like garbage haulers and recycle trucks where, where they're stopping and going all the time. We are seeing these kind of hybrid technologies work for them. It's just trying to get it to work in this more over the road market. And this, I think, is the smartest way of doing it, building just one simple independent axle you know you you look at that um that you know nikolai truck that they've been promoting so heavily i keep seeing it in the news this new electric truck you know it's going to be three hundred and seventy five thousand dollars and and the numbers are are so bad on that truck that it it almost seems like it's got to be a joke to me nobody could possibly be taking that truck seriously I went through the numbers in a show, and John, the engineer, we went through them together. Every single number that they use, and they use a lot of numbers and a lot of data, every single number is so far off the mark, it doesn't even make sense. I mean, it, it, my eyeballs bleed when I read their website. It's so bad. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that's the wrong way to go about this. We can't build an electric truck from scratch. We're not there yet. But building a a hybrid axle, an independent axle, and using it to assist the engine we already have, that makes sense. And I'll tell you, if anybody can build it, John's the guy, and they're working on it. So uh, we'll keep you updated and informed on how that's going. Thanks for joining me. We'll see you next time. Be safe. Be profitable. Be fit and healthy. Always do the hard work and master the journey. Thanks for tuning in to The Audio Road. If you have any questions, give us a call at 855-800-FUEL. That's 855-800-3835. Check out the website at letstruck.com and find us on facebook.com slash letstruck.